So please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And uh, verses 6 through 10 are the main verses of our text this evening. I'd like to begin reading at verse 3. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 beginning at verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. He comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. After a three-month summer recess on October the 3rd, 1994, the Supreme Court of the United States opened its 1994-95 term. And according to the New York Times News Service, the court's legal business for that first day could be summed up with one word, no. The court announced it had refused to hear more than 1,600 cases. The names and docket numbers of the rejected appeals covered 68 typewritten pages. For those cases, that was the last court of appeal, the final word. There's something terribly final about judgment. Supreme Court says no, and that's it. No appeals, no arguments. The books are sealed, and the decision is final. On the great day of judgment, there will also be a terrible crescendo of no's. No, you cannot enter my kingdom. And the door, the doors will be shut forever. No appeal, no time to change one's mind. Those who have rejected Jesus Christ will have forever lost their opportunity for eternal life. What I've just just described is one of the aspects of God's righteous judgment. Last week I brought up that when we think of God's righteous judgment, we usually think of God's judgment against unbelieving sinners. But there's another side to God's righteous judgment, his judgment made on the basis of Christ's sacrifice and obedience. A judgment whereby God declares those who are represented by Christ through faith as being worthy of his kingdom. It's an important question to consider how can we know that this judgment has been made for ourselves and for others? What is the evidence of this righteous judgment? And what Paul says, he says in reference to the Thessalonians, but it applies to all Christians, including you and me. Paul says that it is the suffering of these believers That is the evidence of God's righteous judgment. Now, not suffering itself, not just any suffering, 
but suffering for the sake of Christ, suffering for the kingdom of God, suffering that is being used by God to increase their faith, suffering in which God's hand of grace is evident in giving them strength to persevere, God's gracious use of suffering in your life by which he blesses you spiritually, that is evidence that you belong to God, that you belong to his kingdom. It is evidence of God's righteous judgment toward you. And this evening, as we move forward in our series, we come to verses 6 through 10, verses which are still dealing with this theme of God's righteous judgment. And in these verses, we are told about the judgment of unbelievers. And yet there also continues to be teaching here about the judgment of God toward his people, toward us, by which he blesses us. So this evening we will see in verses 6 through 10 how God's righteous judgment in contrasting ways touches both believer and unbeliever. You must recognize that God is always righteous in his dealings with people. In verse 6, Paul tells the Thessalonians that God will repay with affliction those who afflict you. Literally, God will repay or God will avenge those afflicting you with affliction. This is God's way of saying these enemies of the church are going to get a dose of their own medicine. These evil people who are afflicting you, Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, because you are a child of God, are going to meet with God's vengeance. They will reap what they sow. They will experience punishment for their evil doing. Scripture here says that this is just. For God to take vengeance on those who afflict his people, it is moral, it is right, it is just. It is in perfect conformity to God's law, which of course is the only true standard of right and wrong. Now we are talking at this point about affliction that's not deserved. When you and I are afflicted by our neighbors because of our beliefs, because we lead a holy life, this is affliction that calls out for justice. This is different than the affliction that we could possibly bring on ourselves by our own wrongdoing. There are times when we sin and we bring trouble upon ourselves. Our attitudes and our actions are not always righteous and people react to us accordingly. And this is not the kind of affliction that calls out for vengeance on God's part. The kind of affliction that calls out for vengeance is when someone does something to us for no good reason. It's especially then that our natural reaction is to want to take our, to take our own vengeance. And perhaps we strike back or we hurt our neighbor uh, in a burst of anger by our actions or by our words. Or worse yet, we plan and scheme our revenge. We figure out a way to make our enemy pay. And isn't it true that those who afflict us for no good reason deserve a payback? Well, it is true. But what scripture also teaches is that it's not our place to carry out that vengeance. It's not our place as individuals to take care of these injustices that are done against us. God tells us in Romans 12, verses 17 and following, repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And we see that our text here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 is in perfect agreement with Romans 12. <clears throat> they tell us that not only are we not to take personal revenge, but that we don't need to because God will take care of the injustices done against us. God is a righteous God who will make sure that every sin is punished as deserved. And so you must realize, child of God, God is watching over your life. He knows your hurts. He knows your sorrows. He knows your struggles. He knows the injustices that you suffer. And he is a righteous God who will take care of business. Not only will God repay with affliction those who trouble you, but his righteousness also has that flip side of repaying his people of repaying you with the reward of grace. Paul writes in verse 7, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. So to the one he repays affliction with affliction, to the other he grants relief. And this word relief speaks of a loosening or relaxing of tension or affliction. It speaks of relief. It speaks of a ceasing of affliction. Uh, Some translations here have the word rest, a word that certainly brings to mind the related concept of peace. And in this context, it certainly brings to mind the rest of heaven, where there will be no more affliction, where there will be no problems of any kind. Revelation 21 speaks of that day, says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So though we as God's people are troubled in this life, God promises to give us rest. He promises to give us relief. And this also is a just thing. This also is in accord with God's justice, though in this case it is a rewarding of righteousness. Now, To say that God rewards righteousness is not the same thing as saying that we or anybody else are righteous in and of ourselves. To speak of God repaying his people with rewards is not to say or even imply that we are deserving of anything good from God, which is why a moment ago I spoke of the reward of grace. Uh, Any reward that we receive is a gift that comes to us through Jesus Christ. It is Christ's merits that are being rewarded whenever God in his justice rewards any sinful human being. The only way for you or me to receive a reward from God is through trusting Jesus Christ. When you repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is then put to your account. What also happens when you're united to Christ by faith is that a work of the Holy Spirit is carried on inside of you by which you actually begin to do good works, things that are truly pleasing to God. And then God, out of grace, just rewards his own work in us. Truth is, we can't do anything good ever on our own. Uh, The good works that we do never impress God uh, because they're not born out of us. They're, They're born from God's own work in us. What impresses God is his own son. What impresses God is Christ's sacrifice for sin, his obedience, his merits. God simply rewards the righteousness and good works that are ours by the power of Christ, given to us by grace. 
So will you and I, as those who trust Christ and do good works in his name, receive rewards? Yes. Will we be able to boast about what we have done? Never. God will be glorified even in our rewards. And yet at the same time, these are rewards for us to enjoy. Well, in the verses before us, Paul is definitely writing about the judgment, uh, the judgment of rewards and punishments that are a part of Judgment Day, the judgment that will take place at the second coming of our Lord. Paul finishes verse 7 by telling us when this payment of punishments and rewards will take place. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Verse 10 confirms further, the second coming is in mind when we read, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. When verse 7 speaks of the Lord Jesus being revealed, that verse there is speaking literally of the revelation of Jesus Christ. The idea is that one day the Lord Jesus will be unveiled. He will be revealed to the world. This implies that for right now his lordship is in many ways hidden. And this is true, right? Is it not? Right now to believe in the Lord Jesus is a matter of faith. It is a part of what it means for us to live by faith and not by sight. For right now we don't see the Lord Jesus reigning at the Father's right hand. None of us has been able to see Jesus Christ surrounded by the heavenly army of his angels, ready to do his bidding. The belief that the man, Jesus, who walked on this earth over 2,000 years ago is still alive is something that cannot be proven scientifically. This is also true of the belief that this man, Jesus, is God and Lord, the sovereign king of heaven and earth. We cannot prove these things to the person who insists on believing only what he can experience with his physical senses. There's also the reality that there are things that go on in this world that seem to contradict the idea that Jesus is Lord. And one of, one of these things is, in fact, one of the main things is the persecution of Christians, the very thing that Paul is talking about here in our scripture passage. And we as believers are often tempted by the trials and tribulations and by the persecutions that take place to wonder if Jesus really is in control. Is Jesus truly watching over his church as he has promised? Is Jesus really reigning in heaven as the sovereign Lord? There are plenty of things that go on in this world, things that touch your lives that seem to say the opposite. There's a lot of evil going on in this world that reminds us, that tells us very clearly that the devil is alive and well. And this evil can affect you, it can touch you uh, in very personal ways. And so it is that sometimes we even find ourselves as believers giving in to the temptations of this world to live and to think the way that it does, which can hinder our spiritual growth, which prevents us from serving in the church like we should. And evil, of course, can touch the church in other very direct ways where Christians are killed and Christian churches are shut down and churches struggle against false teachers and their doctrine. Churches struggle with tares who have been sown among the wheat who bring disunity to the body through their worldly ideas and attitudes. So there are plenty of reasons why Scripture speaks of a coming revelation of the Lord Jesus. 
Not only is Jesus not visible to our natural eyes, but the reality of evil seems to challenge his lordship. But one day, all of this will change. The Lord Jesus will be revealed, and he will be seen in a visible way. And not only will Jesus, the man who once walked this earth, be shown to all mankind, but his lordship will be revealed. It will be the Lord Jesus who is revealed. His sovereignty will be known. Everyone will know he is master. In other words, when he comes again, there is going to be no doubt who is God and who is in control of all things. And how will this sovereignty be revealed? Well, through the righteous judgment of God, by which vengeance will be inflicted on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Also through the righteous judgment of God, by which his saints will receive relief and in the way of their salvation will bring glory to God as a God of mercy and grace. But on that last day, no one is going to be able to stand against the will of God. As Lord, his judgment will decide the fate of every single human being. His judgment will be decisive. At his command, every person will be sent either to heaven or hell. Speaking of hell, there are plenty of people today, even professing Christians, who deny the reality of hell. And I predict that even one day uh, it will be necessary to, uh, to have even added to uh, even our confessions uh, more about hell, the reality of hell, the reality of Satan. Um, while most people who believe in God believe that the wicked one day will be punished, many reject this idea of eternal punishment. More and more, the doctrine of annihilation is gaining in popularity. The doctrine of annihilation is the belief that the wicked will be just obliterated, that their existence will be snuffed out, that they will be nullified. Like animals who die and whose consciousness dies with them, so it will be for the wicked, we are told. They will simply be no more. The idea of them suffering on and on for eternity is rejected. Of course, it's easy to see why people would naturally be drawn to belief in annihilation. It's certainly a belief easier to swallow than a belief in eternal punishment. For one thing, annihilation says something about God's righteous judgment against sin, because which sentence of judgment is more severe, annihilation or eternal punishment? Well, obviously, eternal punishment is a harsher sentence. The God of annihilation is thus a God whose righteous judgment is not as severe. He's not quite as harsh. He is a God who is easier for us to accept. And of course, it's our tendency to make a God according to our own imaginations, a God who fits the mold of what what we want him to be. Of course, also, if if, uh, we can speak of a lesser sentence, it means that we're not as, as bad as sinners in his sight. And so, of course, it's no surprise that a sinful man would want to believe in a God of annihilation, since we're talking about what will happen to us, will will happen to sinful man. Um, Annihilation doesn't sound so bad when compared to eternal suffering. In fact, annihilation, uh, in many cases, will be a welcome thing, would be a welcome thing to a person whose life is filled with suffering, such as from a terminal illness. To go out of existence involves no pain. Uh, This is the belief that atheists have. They take comfort in it. They assure themselves that there's no afterlife. They're not going to be held accountable to God. There's 
There's no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as judgment. And uh, the doctrine of annihilation has then painted by some as being about God's righteous judgment, um, a more merciful judgment, but in reality, it's a man-made doctrine that tells the unbelieving, unrepentant sinner, really, if you think about it, it tells him that he's going to escape the righteous judgment of God. So what does the Bible actually teach on this subject? Well, verse 9, all by itself, is enough to refute this doctrine of annihilation. It says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The phrase that's debated is everlasting destruction. And the person who believes in annihilation latches on to this word destruction, but destruction doesn't necessarily mean going out of existence. The Greek word translated destruction speaks of ruin. It does speak of destruction or death. The text could read punished with everlasting ruin or punished with everlasting death. And the fact that it is everlasting means that this is something that goes on and on. It never ends. And scripture here is talking about an everlasting punishment that is the utter ruin of a person's life. And we understand what this ruin, what this destruction, what this death is like from the last part of verse 9, where it says that this consists of being away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Literally, away from the face of the Lord. The face of the Lord is presented in many cases as as the source of blessing and goodness. When God's face shines upon you, that is to have life. While for God to turn his face from you is to experience death. And so to be away from the presence of the Lord, to be away from the face of the Lord, is thus to know nothing of his blessings, to know nothing of his goodness. It's to be cast away from his fellowship. It's to experience nothing of his favor. That's the first part of this description of eternal punishment. The second part is, and, and away from the glory of his might. The glory of his might is the power of God that he possesses in heaven and which he exercises on behalf of his church to bless us, to save us, to give us the experience of life with him. Now, God will certainly be glorified as a God of justice through the eternal punishment of unbelievers, but this is not the glory that is meant in this instance. Verse 9 is speaking of the glory of heaven, the glory of eternal life, the glory that radiates from the Lord, a glory that is absent from hell since God is not there in his goodness and love and mercy. Hell is a place where people will experience nothing of the splendor or bliss of God's might. They will experience only the ruin that it brings upon those who did not love and trust the Lord Jesus in this life. And so this eternal punishment amounts to an eternal state where a person is shunned by God, knows nothing of the blessings of salvation in Jesus Christ. There's no freedom from the guilt of sin. There's no relief and rest from the suffering that characterizes our earthly lives. In fact, hell is a place where even the limited blessings of this life are absent. And this is, you see, in complete contrast to the life that awaits the believer Verse 10 speaks of the day of Christ's coming as a day when he will be glorified in his saints. On that day, not only will Christ be glorified among his people, 
But notice the preposition in us, glorified in his saints. We, might, we would also say glorified by us. Verse 10 speaks of how God will be glorified by our praises when it says, and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. At his coming, all believers, you and I who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be in awe of Christ. There will be glad astonishment and wonder. That There will be this, this marveling of the, uh, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be praise. We will be in awe of Christ's person. We will know that he is God. We will be glad to see him. We will be filled with grateful wonder to see that his coming is a coming by which we will share in his glory. This is the sense in which Christ will be glorified in us. William Hendrickson in his commentary writes these words, quote, He will be glorified in, not merely among them. That is, Christ's people will reflect his light, his attributes as in principle they do even now. But every vestige of sin will have been banished from our soul. We will mirror forth his image and walk in the light of his countenance. In this he will rejoice. In this the angels too, in seeing it, will rejoice. And in this each of the redeemed, seeing the reflection of Christ's image and all the other redeemed, will rejoice. Moreover, not only will Christ rejoice in the reflection of his own image in us, but he will also rejoice in our joy. And his rejoicing in their joy will reflect glory on him. Thus, take it in any sense, he will be glorified in his saints. Our salvation, the salvation of God's people, the church, is one of the key ways that God will be glorified. There are many things that we can be certain about, but there is one thing that virtually no student of the Bible questions, and that is that God will always do what brings glory to his name. And this reality is simply a part of who God is. And what this passage before us this evening is telling you is that your salvation in Christ will bring glory to God. Your salvation is thus something that God's going to do. God is pleased to be known as a God of love and mercy and grace. He is glorified when his glorious attributes are revealed in the salvation of sinners. And this is where especially the marveling, the astonishment, the wonder comes from because the plan of salvation that brings glory to God is exactly that. It is a plan of salvation that directly affects us. We are the ones who are saved. God is glorified through our being delivered from eternal punishment. God is glorified when our sins are forgiven and we are given the hope of eternal life. God is glorified when in his grace he takes a people to himself who can enjoy his fellowship for all eternity. Let it be stated clearly that to be able to share in God's glory is a gift of grace. It's a privilege that is not bestowed upon everyone. There are going to be plenty of people who experience the punishment of this eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. People who do not know God in a relationship of fellowship and friendship. They do not know the God of the Bible. Now they may know of him, but they do not give their lives to him. They do not love him. They do not love his son, Jesus Christ. And they do not obey his gospel. Notice that wording. 
the gospel, yes, it comes as an invitation. And I think sometimes the perspective is, well, it's something that you're invited to participate in, uh, but it's something that's just a matter of, you know, you can walk away. You, you, it's just, it's not really necessary that you respond a certain way. No, the perspective is, yeah, there's an invitation that's given. Come, come and believe, come and repent, come and receive salvation. Uh, but it's really a command. There's really no option when you are called by the God of heaven and earth to put your faith and trust in his son. It's really a matter of obedience. They do not obey his gospel. They do not obey his gospel, which comes to us as sinners and tells us that because of our sin, we must repent. We must lay our sins on the Lord Jesus. The gospel comes as a command that you stop trusting in your own good works, that you stop trusting in your, in your religious works to merit eternal life. The gospel says you must receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. And those who do not obey God, those who do not know God, will be punished. But then what about those who do know God? What about those who do obey the gospel? Well, these are the ones in whom Christ is glorified at his coming. And how is it that sinners like you and me come to know God? How is it that we come to obey the gospel so that we can experience God's eternal blessings? Is this by our own doing? Is it our own decision that we make according to our own free will? No, we come to know God and to obey the gospel by God's gracious work in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can give sinners like you and me a true knowledge of the biblical God. Only he can give us a love for God. Only he can make us bend the knee to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. He makes us to obey the gospel. And God doesn't simply make salvation possible for sinners. He saves sinners. Though he does not save all sinners. He saves his elect. And we have to be grateful for that. He could have chosen to save none. And when Christ returns, he will take vengeance on those who have rejected him as Savior. He will repay those with affliction, who have afflicted his people. Notice that that is how closely Jesus associates himself with us. What is done against us is considered as having been done against him. So do not be discouraged. Do not be tempted to doubt God's power because of the evil that touches your lives. Jesus is Lord. His justice will right all wrongs. And while this truth is encouraging to us, let us be sober as we, re as we rejoice over God's justice against his and our enemies. We must never lose sight of the reality of, that if Jesus had not died on the cross for us, that if, he, that if he had not there taken the wrath that we deserve, we would be on the receiving end of this same vengeance. It is the cross of Jesus Christ alone that gives us our standing with God, where we have a future of hope. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for enabling us to obey your gospel, to bend the knee to the Lord Jesus, to repent of our sins, to stop trusting in ourselves, to stop proudly thinking that we can make it to heaven by our own merits. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us into submission to Christ as Lord. Thank you for enabling us to know you as our God and Savior, as you truly are, and us in relation to you, that we are sinners who deserve judgment. 
But we thank you, Father, for the grace and mercy that is in the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, that you see every affliction that is laid upon us as part of of persecution against us out of hate for Christ. We thank you, Father, that there will be justice one day. But yet, Father, we do pray for those who currently are a part of persecution, perhaps, or at least those who are not currently obeying the gospel, who do not know you. Lord, we pray that you would be at work in their hearts, that they also may experience uh, relief, that they may experience the joys of heaven, the joys of fellowship with you, that they will be or spared from this eternal destruction, away from your presence and away from the from the glory of your might. Lord, we pray that at the Lord's return, the, the return of our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that there will be many who will marvel um, at your grace, who will have believed, and uh, who will be glorified as they share in the glory of their Savior. Father, we thank you that you have given us a place in your kingdom. We pray, Lord, with gratefulness that uh, we will not lose sight of the fact that it is a great blessing, something totally undeserved, that we would be those who share in the glory of Christ, that we have been made uh, to be his bride. We have been united with him, brothers and sisters in Christ, co-heirs with him, Father, what great blessings you have poured out upon us when we deserve the exact opposite. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.